Pitchers and catchers have reported. Now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. The Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner. Buy in for as little as $20 or as much as 1000 You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. Flex your skills as a real GM. Trust your instincts or use access to the advanced analytics. Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasybaseball. Don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There's never been a better time to play. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. I would encourage you, uh, when you're done listening to this podcast, to go check out some of our MLB preview stuff. I wrote about the Braves. Zach wrote about the Yankees. We've got all of our Bryce Harper analysis. Um, also, this is extremely exciting. Ben got his hands on some 73,000 old scouting reports from the Cincinnati Reds uh, and is unpacking those in a series running this week. So that's definitely worth your attention. Uh, it's unlike your your usual uh preview package so we're very excited about that also we're very excited about game of thrones coming back so go re-listen to binge mode uh catch up on our loose end series read miles series breakdown of the new trailer we've got comprehensive game of thrones coverage uh but on the podcast today Later on, we'll be continuing our three-part series on the trends that define modern baseball. So last week, Ben and I talked to Rob Arthur about the state of statistical analysis in the game, so go catch up on that if you're interested. Uh, Later today, I'll be interviewing Mark Normandin, who's written extensively on uh, labor and baseball and the history of labor and baseball. We'll be talking about some of the business end concerns that you've heard Ben and Zach and me talk about uh, on the pod over the past year or so. Uh, But first... Let's round up the usual suspects. It's the news with Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. All right, so we were back this week, and uh, the biggest news of Tuesday is about the same as the biggest news of Thursday, so we're going to start there uh, with Bryce Harper and Ben Lindbergh. Ben? Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. Zach? Hello. So Zach and I did a, a quick Harper podcast where I was very underfed and very over-caffeinated. So now that things have settled down a little bit, we know the exact terms of Harper's contract. We've seen the press conference. Um, I guess we'll, we'll start with you, Ben, since we didn't have your your take on the pot on Thursday. What are your, your general impressions and you know how have they changed it all over the weekend? Yeah, I couldn't join you because I was in the midst of producing my written take. Is which he doing will, work? <laughs> probably. Well, you guys did your work faster. That's why you were on and I wasn't. But I think- I had the reaction that basically I I previewed when we talked about this last before the actual signing, which was that it made all the sense in the world for this player and this team to be matched. I didn't expect it to be for this exact amount of years and dollars, but I think, as you guys said, it seems like a lot of years. Okay, it is a lot of years, and it seems like a lot of dollars, but it's not really a lot of dollars when you take the years into account and the average annual value and how much the Phillies needed Harper, and that's what I focused on in my article. It's just that this was the rare signing that really can and perhaps even will make a a difference between a team not going to the playoffs and going to the playoffs. And those four or five wins, however good you think Harper is, those are extremely valuable and were more valuable to the Phillies than they would have been to the Giants or to the Dodgers. These are extremely crucial wins. And the NL East is just 
on fire right now. Every team in the NL East, except the Marlins, who have shipped their players to other NL East teams, has gotten better over this offseason. And I don't know whether the Central or the East is the best division in baseball, but they are both going to be really riveting. What did what did you make of him at you know the no trade no no trade clause no uh, opt out no options this is just a straight thirteen year contract which we talked about is is just bizarre in this day and age it seemed like and from the you know I I said it during his his press conference if if he hits as hard as he's pandering uh, he's <laughs> he's going to hit fifty home runs this year uh, it seems like he's like interested in in becoming the man you know being that sort of foundational franchise figure and and not just like the mercenary who comes in at the the last minute and you know this feels like pr this feels like spin as it's coming out of my mouth so you know i'm curious what your your read on all that is yeah it was refreshing just to look at the terms of a contract and have that be it and not have to figure out what an opt-out or a swell opt is worth especially because we've seen boris have some very strange experimental contract structures with this very team with the jake arietta contract and this one was just old-fashioned and i know that boris has said that harper essentially instructed him to have someone lock him up long term he didn't want to go with the short dodgers deal now boris is going to say whatever he thinks makes Bryce Harper look best. And maybe it makes Harper look best to say, oh, he just wants to commit to one team and stay there forever. But clearly he does. <laughs> He's okay with that outcome or he wouldn't have signed away essentially the entire rest of his career with one team. So I think it's always kind of nice when there's that sort of stability as much as we approve of players' ability and right to go play wherever they want. It's always nice when a superstar gets to stay in one place and also get paid. So I think that's happening here. So Zach, you know, we talked about this this podcast or this talked about on the podcast that the contract was supposed to be front loaded. Um, and shortly after we we stopped talking, the a- actual details of the contract came to light. It's going to be $10 million in 2019 with a $20 million signing bonus. So essentially a, a $30 million uh, payout in 2019. And then from 2020 to 2028, it's going to be $26 million. And then the last three years of the contract, it's going to be $22 million. So it's, this is not as, as front loaded. Like I was wondering if this was going to go like up to 35 and down to like 12 or 13 in the, the last couple of years of the contract. So, but you know, you think about inflation and revenue going up, hopefully, does this change your your perception of of the contract at all in terms of what it does for Harper and the Phillies. I think it if anything sort of elucidates why teams don't front load contracts and I think we've talked theoretically about why that would make sense in certain situations but I would guess from Philly's perspective uh maybe they didn't want to front load because they figure the first few years of Bryce Harper's contracts will be when he's at his most productive. So that's maybe when their their contention window will be the biggest. So like, yes, it doesn't necessarily matter for luxury tax purposes what the average or what the distribution is because the luxury tax just uses the average. So it would be the same either way. But like they still have to make a yearly balance sheet. So if they're spending, you know, $40 million in year one, maybe they would be more reluctant to go out and add that second piece uh, if they need one. So by not front-loading it a huge amount, I think it does perhaps free them up a little bit more to make more like win-now moves in the present or the near-term future. But that said, I think it doesn't necessarily matter a huge deal long-term because like I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, like 
the Phillies are selling so much more in merchandise yeah. and ticket sales and everything that they're making a lot of money back anyway. I'd be interested to see, because it's clear that they're considering the financial constraints, i.e. like what does our actual balance sheet look like? And the competitive balance tax, it's two different marks to hit. Next year, uh, McCutcheon's salary is going to go up. Kingery's salary is going to go up. Nola's salary is going to go up. Uh, and Arietta's salary is going to go down. But the the net effect of this is that the Phillies are going to be paying paying more, I think, for their their top end players than they are this year, even though the the luxury tax hit remains essentially constant. Um, and I'm interested to see whether they just say the luxury tax threshold is our target or if they say, well, we're just not going to spend more than $200 million in absolute terms. Because, you know, you alluded to this. What they're saying is, so the the Phillies released a mock-up of of the powder blue Bryce Harper number three throwback, and everybody on the internet collectively went, ooh. <laughs> and and Fanatics said that it's the uh the best-selling jersey in the I forget exactly what the but something like the best-selling jersey for a free agent to a new team uh in the first 24 hours or 48 hours, like including LeBron to the Lakers, uh, which is pretty incredible. It means they're moving a, a lot of merch. So I'm I'm interested to you know, to see how this affects them. You know, I don't give a damn about John Middleton's bottom line, but I'm interested to see if that empowers or inspires them to spend more on the team going down the line. Maybe the Phillies could miss the playoffs in the first season, like the Lakers with LeBron too. Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) It is interesting. Is Riley McAtee behind you? (laughs) It's interesting to see those Jersey numbers because, well, A, it's unusual to see a baseball player and a baseball star at the top of any list of athletes doing prominent things because we're constantly told that baseball players aren't famous on a national or international scale. And there seems to have been at least survey and polling data that supports that idea. And yet, if do you buy that? (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to say just real quick, maybe it's the that you know baseball is having a big cultural moment i also like kind of think that phillies fans are are just sort of thirsty maniacs and they've <laughs> all been waiting for this and so they all just went to models or fanatics the the very first day and just had to get the new harper jersey i think this might have to do a little a little bit with the the market uh speaking from experience then baseball's broader cultural relevance so if that if, sorry if that like stepped on your <laughs> on your point but no yeah, yeah I, I, I want I to at least entertain that possibility i don't disagree it's just almost refreshing to not have to scan way down a list to see the first baseball player but i wonder whether this is a reflection of harper as an individual as a perhaps unique individual i mean if this had been machado if this had been any other big free agent would it have produced this reaction would trout i assume trout would produce this reaction in Philly, but that has been part of the story or the perceived story of Bryce Harper's free agency is that he brought some marquee value, some fame off the field that might be of some concrete value to a team. And maybe this is a manifestation of that. I'm always confused because you hear that no one knows who Mike Trout is and Bryce Harper is the face of baseball. And then you look and I think Mike Trout has like twice the Twitter followers of Bryce Harper and more Instagram followers, which I don't know if that's an accurate way to appraise fame, but that is if one that's way to true, do it. It's definitely, yeah, I it's, definitely it's had some what measure. You would expect. Bryce Harper's Instagram is a lot better than Mike Trout's, <laughs> which I'm sure surprises nobody. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, there's that too. But anyway, if this was a dimension, I'm sure that when Scott Boris was talking to owners, he was trying to sell them on the idea that, hey, you're going to sell lots of merch and tickets because it's Bryce Harper and he's famous and he has hair and all the rest. So maybe this is an actual example of that happening, but I don't know. It's hard to say and it's hard to just trust without actually getting to see the numbers. You're kind of taking a, a company's word for their sales. Even if it's not just a a uniquely Phillies fan thing, I think that there is sort of a perfect storm of a marquee free agent making a huge splashy move to a big market team that hasn't been good that like this, like you said, it's, it could be, this isn't him going to the Red Sox where they were going to make the playoffs no matter what, like he could be the difference between, between them having a bad off season, a good off season between not making the playoffs between and making the playoffs. And the player is not only a former MVP, but he's, one of, he's very brand conscious in a way that like, you know, we talk about marketable players in baseball, like Francisco Lindor is a guy I always bring up who like, I think ought to be the face of baseball just in terms of, of, um, his personality and style of play. But like guys like Harper and you know, Carlos Correa is a little bit like this. Uh, it, they're, they've got an eye on, on like the larger, you know, not like almost NBA style celebrity. And I think that you know, there's, there's a lot that's cultivated about, um, about Harper's decision. And maybe that's reflected in the Jersey sales. I think it's certainly reflected in his intro presser where he's talking about, um, you know, making big promises about bringing the championship home and, and changing his uniform number out of respect for Roy Halladay, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I called it pandering before, but it's, you know, if, if you want a more neutral thing, it's it's playing to the crowd. Um, anything more on on Harper? I imagine we're going to talk about this in the, you know, we're going to talk about the the NL East race and and do some over unders and prop bets and in future episodes as we go on. But anything else from the the first weekend of Bryce Harper's uh, Philly screw sticks out to you guys? As a Phillies fan, were you upset, annoyed, or just kind of laughing at his gonna bring a championship back to DC comment? So I, I, I laughed because I am terrified of doing Freudian slips or like, just like blanking on basic pieces of information, like forgetting, like, I talk to you guys every week and I'm afraid that I'm going to call one of you guys by the wrong name. That's Um, what we have Bobby for. Yeah. Well, who's Bobby? Um, (laughs) So we're, so I'm very sympathetic to, to that as a Freudian slip and I'm, I'm laughing it off. I, you know, and if, and if they do win a world series and he wants to take the parade or take the parade and the, the trophy down to DC just to rub it in, then more power to him. But yeah, I, I'm not worried about him being a sleeper agent or anything. I am kind of happy that he'll have to play the nationals 19 times a year just for the drama of it all. Right off the bat. Like that's the, like the, what first and second weekend of the season is Phillies to Washington and Washington back to Philly. Yeah. Exciting so, subplot. Yeah. That's, it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited for the national league. I'm prepared to not pay attention to the American league for <laughs> right. six months and then just yeah. pick it up and see who's in the playoffs and, and just devote all of my attention to the NL. Um, but speaking of the American league, unfortunately I am professionally obligated to follow teams such as the New York Yankees who have scratched Luis Severino from his start. Um, this is one of a, a spate of nagging injuries that are coming into uh, coming into play for pitchers in spring training. That's sort of like the cost of doing business. Like the Braves of Mike Fultonavich isn't isn't pitching. Kevin Gassman's just getting on the mound right now. Mike Soroka is uh, is dealing with some nagging injuries. Like every team's got one or two of these guys. Um, Zach, you brought this up 
you know, are, are you worried about Severino making opening day or is this just one of those things? Yeah, I think we'll probably find out. I mean, even later today, potentially Meredith Marakovitz from the Yes Network just reported that Severino felt something in the back of his shoulder when he was warming up and he's going to get an MRI this afternoon. So it might turn out to be nothing, but I think this is, I guess, potentially noteworthy for a few reasons. One is that Severino is just a bright young pitcher who's very fun to watch. And even though he struggled in the second half last year, he's still a legitimate Cy Young contender and he has been for a couple of years now. And two, you were just talking about how uncompetitive the American League looks compared to the National League. And I think that's true in two of the divisions, but the AL East could be a lot of fun again where you have the Red Sox and the Yankees. And I think a lot of people are sleeping on the Rays as potentially forming a really fun three-way race. And to see one of the best pitchers in the division removed from that race before it begins would be pretty disappointing. So uh, who knows, this could turn out to be nothing in a complete overreaction, but I think you see pitcher and discomfort in shoulder and you you know your mind immediately starts going toward the worst possible outcomes that is a rough combination of words yeah (laughs) yeah and i think this is why you see pitchers so willing particularly pitchers to sign extensions as severino just did because you are always just one day one pitch one outing away from having some feeling in some place where you're not supposed to have that feeling and this may very well prove to be nothing and just a blip but from time to time more serious injuries strike without warning. And that's why if someone's offering you four years and 40 million and you're thinking, I'm Luis Severino, maybe I deserve more than 40 million. On the other hand, you're thinking, I'm Luis Severino, a young pitcher who could be very wealthy if I sign this deal and then I'll be set for life even if I do have a shoulder problem the next day. So I think that is why the incentive structure is so skewed toward players signing extensions that are quote unquote below market or team friendly. And when I used to have more of a rooting interest in a team, I used to just hope that spring training would pass and opening day would get there and just no one would be a casualty. I I just wanted spring training to end and the season to start as soon as possible because every day I was just dreading, okay, who's going to get hurt today? Because spring training is the time when particularly pitchers tend to get hurt. I've written a couple times about how there's a huge Tommy John spike at this time of year that I don't think it's the majority, but certainly more than at any other time of the year. Injuries that lead to Tommy John surgery occur or at least are first reported during spring training because you've got guys who are maybe rushing back too soon and they push something a little too hard or maybe they had something wrong at the end of the previous season and they just figured an offseason will fix it and then it doesn't so they actually have to tell people about it. So this is the danger zone and every team is just trying to get to opening day without losing anyone like Severino. Yeah, I wonder how those uh, numbers will be different now this year because Garrett Richards tears his UCL every spring training. Uh, <laughs> now he's already on the on the shelf, so maybe that'll right. have an impact on league wide numbers. But yeah, I don't think you're alone. I think like unless you've got a uh, you know it, unless you live in a place like I do and uh, spring tr- your week long trip to spring training is the one chance you have to get some sun uh, between like Thanksgiving and Easter, then I, th- I think everybody just sort of wants to to see the guys in the uniform and after the first week, certainly it's just, just don't get hurt. Don't get hurt. That's the mm-hmm. the only thing anybody cares about. And I don't think it even needs to be a fandom thing necessarily. Like I'm not the Cleveland fan, but it sucks that we're going to be without Francisco Lindor for a period of time. And with the Dodgers, I mean, we've talked about Clayton Kershaw a lot on this podcast and it seems like he might not be ready for opening day because of some lingering discomfort. So 
I don't think we've had like the huge season ending injury yet, but just given the odds, we'll probably get a couple before knocking on wood. Yeah, we'll probably get a couple before the season starts. And it's like an annual ritual that doesn't make it any easier to go down when it actually arrives. All right. Um, here's something that I am it, an upsetting story uh, out of uh, San Francisco um, that I feel like we we should talk about since it's one of the biggest stories of uh of the weekend for baseball, uh, San Francisco Giants own, or CEO Larry Bear uh, was caught on video having a, a physical altercation with his wife in a public park. He was seen uh, pulling her out of her chair, trying to, to get her cell phone. Um, there are multiple witnesses corroborating that saying she looked frightened. And um, we, we deal with domestic violence uh, far too often in, in baseball and sports in general. And uh, it's seeing a, a video like this is, is still bracing. Um, the initial, statement from Larry Bear seemed to be banking on nobody seeing this video, which TMZ, you know, the way we found out about it is TMZ published it. Uh, So it was just, I mean, I was going to say it came off as kind of glib and dismissive, and I don't think we need the came off as, you know, it was. Um, So the, the commissioner's office is dealing with this. Or they they said they're looking into it. Larry Bear is taking a, a leave of absence. Um, this is not like the Roberto Osuna case or, or anything, you know, or Addison Russell, where there's, you know, what is alleged to have happened uh, went on behind the scenes, and there's, you know, there is physical evidence of this. There are multiple, uh, you know, multiple multiple witnesses without a stake in any way in the story. There's video that's extremely public, and it's just I. I was, I hope the league does something about this, but I, I worry that there's no no mechanism for them to pu- to punish an owner like this. Because what you know, they, can they suspend them? What you know, how can you find somebody that rich in any way that doesn't come off like a, a slap on the wrist? You know, could they force him to to sell his stake in the team and he, have him just walk away as a multi billionaire? You know, it just it's disheartening to know that you know it certainly doesn't seem right off the bat that that he views this as a, a serious issue. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the league can really do about it. Yeah. So he has taken a, a voluntary leave, or at least that's how they're terming it. You would hope that the existence of a video did not always make the difference in incidents like this, but it often seems to it does. <laughs> that when you can't see it, someone can spin it, you can spin it, you can sweep it, sweep it under the rug. And if we can all see it, then that can't happen. And the way that he initially described this as just a, an accident and his wife had an injured foot and she fell off the chair. I mean, you watch it in 30 seconds and that is very obviously not what's happening there. So the fact that he was disingenuous about the first statement makes you doubt any kind of contrition you, you've heard since then or you might hear in the future. Now, Jeff Passan did report, right, that the Major League Baseball domestic violence policy applies to applies front, to front office, office people. and ownership, yeah. But again, as you're saying, it's hard to know exactly how it applies unless, you know, you suspend them for 50 games, 15 games, what, they can't sit and, in the skybox or something? It's <laughs> Yeah, as unsatisfying a remedy, and I think that we've proved pretty consistently that everybody just, nobody feels okay, come, not, and and not that that's even the point, but it's just it it feels like something that that you have to do. But it, I don't know that it feels productive to suspend a player, and that has to go double for somebody who's not on the field or not even you know tangibly involved in baseball operations. Fangraphs uh, had a really uh, thorough analysis by Cheryl Ring, who's a lawyer, 
uh, about specifically what Manfred's purview is here. And it seems like Rob Manfred, based on the collective bargaining agreement, has basically total control over what happens here, even more so than he does with player discipline. So I think that's even more where this, in terms of like the steps of what happens next, specifically from the San Francisco Giants perspective, there really isn't much precedent for this and there isn't much of a guideline either. So I think that's part of, you know, of course this entire situation is difficult to talk about, but what makes this specific part of it difficult to talk about is there's not that like written down uh, guideline to, to go on. Yeah. And I've, I've said before that to a certain extent, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to the league for not being able to handle this. Um, not being able to handle this in a satisfactory manner because it's an incredibly difficult thing that doesn't like, this shouldn't be something that an entertainment venue should have to deal with. This is like a, a major moral and societal and public health crisis that, that it ought to be over the league's pay grade. And, and so, you know, it, it puts the, the league office does have to, to do something just to show that they're taking it seriously on that, uh, on those levels. But, you know, I, it's difficult to expect them to, come up with a, a satisfactory re, you know resolution for something that that is really just such a bigger problem than uh than baseball is equipped to handle and you know that doesn't ha- it certainly doesn't um abdicate rob manfred or the leagues or or even the the um other members of the of giants manage- management and uh and front office from their responsibility to to treat this um treat this issue seriously but you know it it is incredibly difficult so I think we're we're all more or less in agreement on uh, on this story. Let's move to to something that this is a tough segue, but there, there's no such thing as an easy segue out of that. Um, there is a story that I think we might have a little bit of disagreement on. So uh, Jess Mendoza, who is the color commentator for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, um, uh, one of my favorite color commentators in in baseball, uh, she is taking a baseball operations position with the Mets while continuing to work for ESPN, and uh, this is. This is a very nuanced story on a couple angles. One, she's one of the most high-profile women in baseball. Uh, you know, on the broadcast side, get you know, it would be a, a big deal if any analyst of that stature moved to a front office. But she's remaining in her job. Um, so there's, you know, we're talking about women in the front office, women in the broadcast booth. You know, the the Mets, what the Mets in particular might get from her insights. Um, but also, there's an issue of she's going to be calling games for a neutral media outlet, a nominally neutral media outlet while being involved in the Mets decision-making, which I, I think is, it's not uncommon. Um, Cause Ben and I, you know, Ben asked uh, Rob Arthur about this on the, on the pod just last week, cause he's done public facing and uh, team oriented analysis um, at the same time. So, you know, this is not uncommon, but this, this seems to be, a little bit controversial from that that standpoint. So, you know, Zach, I know you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that I think uh, a lot of people online will complain about the state of baseball announcing right now and baseball broadcasting because a lot of baseball announcers aren't necessarily the most enthusiastic about the game. And they'll do a lot of, well, back in my day, a strikeout was a bad thing kind of analysis. And I think by and large, Sunday Night Baseball avoids that. Jess Mendoza has been really good the last few seasons. Her one-on-one interviews are really insightful. And I think she's a good color commentator. Uh, And 
I think it's also kind of tough to tell from the announcement. Like you never necessarily know with these advisory roles how much of a say the people will have. The Mets press release said, quote, her focus will be in the areas of player evaluation, roster construction, technological advancement, and health and performance, end quote. So that's, you know, kind of vague, kind of broad. But I think if she's making decisions that does uh, venture into conflict of interest territory, the first Sunday night baseball game this year is between the Phillies and Braves, who are direct division rivals with the Mets. And I think like the fact that Alex Rodriguez is a special advisor for the Yankees is also a conflict of interest. It's not like, oh, it's okay for them, but not for her. I think it's a potential conflict of interest for all of them. Uh, the Mets, we've talked about conflicts of interest with them earlier this offseason because they hired a former agent who's now negotiating with a lot of his former clients. And I think he's done some really interesting things with his hires. He hired some public-facing analysts who we like, like Adam Gutridge from uh, the Nephi uh, site and Russell Carlton from Baseball Prospectus. I think Jess Mendoza is another like very good qualified outside the box hire. It's really not, that's not the part I'm questioning. It's more the also staying in an ESPN capacity where now she'll be you know calling games with Alex Rodriguez, who is also working for a team. She'll be potentially sharing a studio with ESPN's David Ross, who's a special advisor for the Cubs. So there are just a lot of like reaching across boundaries, and I know that. It's not necessarily a, a huge problem, but it does strike me as a little off-putting. And like, what happens when every single baseball announcer is working for a team that, I don't know, I feel like I'm getting into press box territory now, but <laughs> that's that's where I was with this news. Yeah. When I saw the news, I was initially surprised. I went, huh, that's uh, somewhat uncommon. But it's not, of course, completely uncommon, as we're saying. I think the difference, at least the perceived difference, is that when you have an ex-major league star in some sort of role with the team, everyone just assumes it's kind of a sinecure and they're just sort of showing up and glad-handing people, maybe acting as a spring training instructor, that kind of thing. Whereas with Jess Mendoza, from the description, it sounds like she is doing a real front office job where she's going to play a, a big part of the evaluation process for the Mets. So I think the the language, the terms, maybe that's an unfair assumption to assume that every X star who is working for his old team is just kind of, you know, drawing a perpetual paycheck because he's a, a local hero. But I think that led to some of this reaction. Of course, she is always reacted to differently in ways that are that are often unfair and, and somewhat sexist just because of, of who she is. I don't know that that's playing a role here. I think that- well, I think it probably is generally, but that's not the point right, any of us are making. Right. I, I think that it bothers me less as a viewer. I mean, this is what, Sunday Night Baseball? This is the institution that employed- John Cruck and Joe Morgan for years. I'm not necessarily <laughs> expecting, you know, journalistic integrity from this role. I, I look at it more as an entertainer, I suppose. And sure, part of being entertained is maybe feeling like the broadcaster is is not just saying things because he or she is employed by a, a team and, and is is biased by that in some way. I think I'd probably be more uncomfortable with it were I the Mets than I am as a viewer or than I would be as, at, at ESPN just because I would wonder, is this person going to say something on the air that they know because of their role with us? And obviously they're comfortable with that. So 
it's a, an unusual arrangement. And I would imagine that it can always be easy to navigate for that person because I don't know how often the Mets will be on Sunday Night Baseball this year or ever. But uh, they're going to be all right. They're, yeah, no, I, they I are. They, they so be an issue. do you recuse yourself from that broadcast? I, 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 I don't hope know. not because that... That booth gets a little rough without it. I, I will <laughs> right. say, like the I, you know, as sympathetic as I am to the conflict arguments, like I'm okay with whatever outcome keeps her in the, the Sunday night baseball booth instead mm-hmm. of, you know, just yes. that excursion and there's and a greater good here. Yeah. Um, one other aspect of this that bothers me and bothers me with all sorts of consulting, you know, part time consulting gigs, and you know, maybe if you're one of those David Ross or, or Alex Rodriguez types, or you know whoever is the special assistant to showing up at golf tournaments um, and also showing up in the broadcast booth every Sunday, like those roles are ambassadorial and, you know, you just, maybe you don't want to commit to full-time, but stay to something full-time, but you want to stay in the game. But like the Sunday night baseball analyst, you know, that's a full-time, very prestigious, very demanding job. And so is working in baseball ops in the Mets front office. And, you know, I would rather see, two different people get that opportunity. And this goes for, it. you know, I'm not calling out any of our friends from, from BP who have, who have, uh, you know, written it, uh, you know, written publicly and done consulting at the same time, you know, the, the more people than, uh, than you, than we can count that we know have done this, you know, it's the gig economy though. It's, uh, instead of hiring one person to do one job, everybody's got two jobs that require 75% of the commitment and pay you half as much. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm sure that's not what's going on, but there's, you know, what's going on exactly, but there's more than enough money to go around uh, to give opportunities to more people. So, you know, I'm, I think Jess Mendoza is very qualified for whichever of these uh, positions or, you know, career paths she'd want to pursue. I would just like to see you know, this is one person filling two doors, and this is true of, of Ross and and uh, and Alex Rodriguez, and every, you know, I, I would like to see if if a team wants somebody's insight, then you know, pay them for all of their insight, or if a media company wants somebody's insight, then pay them for all of their their insight. That's uh, kind of that's you know, just sort of my. I don't think anybody else is, is really upset about that, but I, I think it's it's worth saying that should have saved know, this for today's interview segment. It's part of the. Uh, we talked about so much else related to this, um, but you know, it's part of the, the freelancification of, uh, of, uh, of sports analysis. And it's even going into places like ESPN or, or teams that can, can afford to pay people a full-time wage. And that's, you know, it's the 17th most important aspect of this story, but it's, it's just something that, that bugs me. But the good thing I think is interesting because it's with the Mets specifically is that, when Brody Van Wagenen was hired, there was some discussion about how, on the one hand, it was encouraging that he didn't have to take the typical path of rising through like different hierarchies of analyst roles to become a general manager, and that it's good to see th- teams thinking outside the box. But usually, when teams think outside the box, the people who get those opportunities look and come from the same like general background as everyone else who works in front offices. So it is encouraging in that respect to see someone like Jess Mendoza, who doesn't look like Brody Van Wagenen and oh, played softball. And like she's going to get a like good opportunity in the Mets front office. And I think it's good to see that pool being expanded at the same time. Yeah, that's that's true, but it's also Stan. You know, former Stanford athlete hires former Stanford athlete. And, Fair. You know, there's 
you you can't take 10 steps in baseball or sports media without tripping over somebody who played baseball or softball at Stanford. So it's, you know, I, I, your point is well taken. It's, you know, it's, uh, important to see, you know, I, I think this is something I think we glossed over maybe a little bit too quickly is seeing a woman as a high profile front office hire is, you know, big in terms of representation, but, you know, jocks are, are still going to get the jocks and business people and, you know, private school jocks and business people are still going to get the first crack at these jobs. All right. Well, that's, uh, that'll wrap it up for the first half of the, uh, ringer MLB show this week. I'm going to be back talking uh, about the economics of baseball and free agency with Mark Normandon, uh, after these messages, but fellas, thanks for, for, uh, joining me this week. Thank you. Thanks. All right. We'll be back right after this. Pitchers and catchers have reported. Now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. The Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out the Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues, where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner. Buy in for as little as $20 or up to 1000 You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. The new weekly scoring format makes it even easier to run your team all season. Flex your skills as a real GM. Trust your instincts or use access to analytics. Find your sleepers or stash of minor league talent. The top 10 prospects for each Major League Baseball team are available. Use the Set Active Players feature to set your lineup for the week in just one tap. Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasybaseball. Create your own league, join a public league, renew your league from last year. Just don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There's never been a better time to play Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like I used to be, not much. But I recently discovered socks that changed the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Right now, I'm looking out my window at snow and temperatures in the teens, which used to be a real deterrent to going outside, but no longer because I know my Bombas will keep my feet warm and comfortable. Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They're made of super soft, natural cotton, and every pair comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's comfy but not too thick. With many colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas look great in the gym, at the office, and out on the town. Bombas are what feet daydream about. Best of all, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash MLB today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB for 20% off. Bombas.com slash MLB. All right, so this is the the second installment in our preseason uh, baseball trend series. So last week we talked to Rob Arthur about the state of statistical analysis in baseball, and today we again have another guest. Uh, he is Mark Normandin, who you might know from his work at Deadspin and the Hardball Times, and uh, from his newsletter. He was a, a former MLB editor at SB Nation, and uh, now he joins me. Mark, thanks for joining me. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. So when I told Ben uh, that... I was talking to you, he said, is this week's trend socialism? And uh, I said, yes, but that's really not true. This week's trend is is unfettered capitalism. We're going to talk about uh, the impact of economics on the on-field product of, of baseball, which sounds very abstruse. Uh, so that leads me to my first question. Why should fans care about things like the luxury tax and how much a, a split of revenue players get and service time manipulation? Oh, boy. Am I, are, we, are we booked for enough time for me to go through <laughs> all that? This might take the, I mean, if this takes the half hour, then that's fine. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's tough because um, one of the major components that we talk about is 
even if you are invested in this, you have to admit like, hey, this is a fight between millionaires or in, like aspiring millionaires versus billionaires. So not quite a super relatable uh, battle for a lot of people to get invested into, but it's still a labor battle. Uh, players are, they're both the product and the worker, uh, which makes for kind of a fascinating fascinating argument that you don't necessarily see in a whole lot of other fields. It's not like it's, you know sports are the only realm where that's the case, but uh, it, it's definitely different than you know someone in a factory or what have you. There's reasons to care because, I mean, it's, it's right to care about the workers getting what they're supposed to be getting. It's actually been heartening to see some people arguing that the MLBPA should care more about what's happening to minor league players too, because it's like, oh good, some fans out there actually like do care and want to be more radical than, you know, the state of things and unfettered capitalism, as you put it, uh, allows. I mean, my handle into this was sort of reading into, there was a moment where, uh, Baseball. I realized that baseball teams were pursuing every advantage in in terms of paying players less than they absolutely had to, and I started to notice things from my own professional career before I got in. You know, when I was just a regular office worker, or when I was a grad student, or when you know it, stuff that I've talked to with my friends. Like these are these are similar labor battles, but just with a zero added on to the end of it. And I think you know that's sort of how you gotta how you gotta pitch it. But even then, like it's it, it is tough to sell. As opposed to something like the minor league, uh, you know, the fight for minor leaguers getting a, a living wage, like that is a serious labor consideration. That's bordering on like a human rights issue. And now, but once they get into, you know, it's hard to explain why it's important that Bryce Harper make twenty five, make thirty million dollars a year instead of eighteen million dollars a year, or something like that. Yeah, there's definitely a concern somewhere in this fight. If if things aren't directed in the right direction, good good word choice. You know, if the owners are taking up all the money, then there is zero chance minor leaguers will ever get what they're supposed to get. But you can't necessarily support them from the start because you have to get the MLB players on board with supporting minor league players. And to get MLB players on board with being in a position to even get what they're supposed to get, you know, like the whole conversation has to change. So there's this multi-step process. Uh, So even if you just do not care at all about what happens to MLB players because they are millionaires or multimillionaires or aspiring millionaires, all this stuff's still connected, and it, it leads into the battle that you might actually care about, the one you can relate more to, the one involving uh, baseball's actual working class. So let's look at this from not just as sort of like a proxy battle for for labor at large, but I think there's a, you know, I, I went on the, the Productive Outs podcast last week, and they asked me when this sort of became a mainstream issue, because there used to be just like a, a friend, you know, you and I have been yelling about this for years and not like we were the first, but it, it, this didn't used to be a mainstream argument. You know, the the revenue split or, or the state of free agency or, or anything like that. People didn't really seem to pay attention. And now it's a big issue. And there are a couple of reasons why I think the, the tide might have turned. But one of them is it's actually impacting the on-field product now in a way just in the past two off seasons. I think back to 2015 when we were writing about uh, Matt Harvey or Chris Bryant uh, getting his uh, service time manipulated. And now, like, those things are commonplace. And they're so so commonplace that now we're seeing it affect the entire course of franchises. Yeah, uh, man, 20 years ago, you know, um, MLB ownership really, like, changed their tactics for dealing with bargaining and how they wanted all this to be presented in the media. Some of it was born out of a fear that endless labor battles would eventually kill the sport. and more of it was built out of a fear that 
endless labor battles would go poorly for the people making most of the money. And I feel like that kind of just, it like changed the media's perspective on all of this, which in turn changed fan perspective. And we're kind of like 20 years into that experiment. And it's the only breakthrough, as you said, is because the game feels in many ways like it's getting worse, uh, or at least different in a way that's uncomfortable because of all the like obvious exploitation that's happening and how hard people have to fight to justify the, uh, the exploitation and the loopholes. So it's kind of opened, it's opened things back up where this conversation can be paid attention to the other side of it. Uh, the, the side of it that you and I have been, <laughs> have been extolling for a while now. I think I've, I've brought up this, uh, this idiom here or in another forum at some point, but a friend of mine who's a tax lawyer has a, a phrase he's fond of the pigs get fat and the hogs get slaughtered. And it, it feels like ownership had it really good that they, they really controlled the, the discourse on, you know, what's an appropriate thing for a player to get paid or, you know, how we frame the discussion around something like money, you know, the, the great baseball books of the first decade of the 20, you know, of the, the 21st century money ball or the extra 2% they're about, you know, once you get past like the creativity of it and the the interesting underdog narrative, it's about paying people less than they're worth, you know, exploiting workers' ignorance to pay them less than the value of their production, you know, and I think that's maybe that's like a maybe a cheekily uncharitable way to put the argument, but that is to a certain extent what it boils down to. But that wasn't the way people were thinking about it until we had this juxtaposition of well, Chris Bryant's obviously the best third baseman the Cubs have, and they're they're going to pretend that Michael is better for exactly two and a half weeks until they can control him for another year of arbitration. Um, you know, and like this, the Yankees are saying they're going to pretend, or the Dodgers are saying they're going to pretend, and they're just passing on the two best free agents in the the market scene in the past. I don't know, eight to ten years, and it's it just became so brazen. I think that I think some points. So at some point, the fans just stop buying, and and we've seen it not just you know writers getting more vocal or players getting more vocal, and I want to talk about that in a second. But like fans, you know, all throughout the winter, there are stories of of it at fans or at uh, Dodgers Fan Fest and Pirates Fan Fest fans asking executives point blank, "Why aren't you spending the way you promised to?" Yeah, it's definitely a case of it's like they had they had an acceptable, a publicly acceptable, socially acceptable amount of exploitation happening. And then they just kind of were like, well, what if we could do a little bit more than that? And it kind of made it to, you know, you ha- you've had the the union. It's not that like the union hasn't been trying. I, I do dislike that like idea that the MLBPA has just been tricked completely and has no idea what they're doing or whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I used to be one of those people who, who banged that drum. And I think that was, it's not entirely accurate or at least like not a, Getting getting tricked or being complicit is not the same thing as as getting as trying and getting beaten. Yeah, I mean they've been outmaneuvered. Yes, they're a, a union starts from you know there is power in a union and everything, but a negotiating position they are starting from. They're not the ones necessarily in control. They can become in control through a variety of tactics like strikes, which is the thing that just hasn't been taken out of the toolbox for a couple decades. But they weren't necessarily in a position where a strike would have been publicly received in a beneficial way until now, or three years, two years from now, three years from now, because the owners have pushed too far and it's become so much more obvious that they've pushed too far. Uh, the Bryant thing is very, is very interesting because they essentially radicalized this guy. Why did they do that? <laughs> 
Chris Bryant, like you think about the players who are speaking out and like Justin Verlander's always been opinionated, you know, like Colin McHugh and, and, uh, and Sean Doolittle have always been kind of woken online. And Chris Bryant is like a human jar of tapioca pudding. And, <laughs> you know, you see the, the stuff he said to Sahad of Sharma in the athletic last week, like he's ready to storm the barricades or at least, you know, that's what it sounds like by Chris Bryant's standards. And so it's, it's very, I do think that if ownership is messed up and, and I do want to talk about the, the bargaining position, the players find, find themselves in. If I do think if ownership has made a mistake, it's that they've made it obvious why this is important to players. And that's, uh, you know, I, I think could, I don't know, maybe this is just unrealistically optimistic, but that could end up being a misstep in the long term. I mean, it, it would be kind of on brand, not that the owners are the same besides like Reinsdorf are the same that they were in the eighties, but all the collusion in the eighties was them pushing way too far. And then 1990 and 94 were about the owners being mad that they got caught being pushed too far. So they pushed even further. What was it? 2002, 2003, there was, yeah, uh, that was a, the last collusion case. There was a collusion grievance and it was settled, which is a, you know, fancy legal way of saying like, oops, we did it, but we don't want to drag it out in public and we hope you forget about it, which has happened. I feel like people just don't, they think of collusion as a thing that happened in the eighties and it's so long ago. But, you know, it's happened this century. So it's amazing that the the same people who would think, hey, we should settle so that this doesn't leave a big stain, you know, on our legacies or make people think we're doing this sort of thing. Kind of those same people are like, what if we push? What if we push further again? I bet no one will suspect anything this time. Well, I think there there might be a an information gap because, you know, the collusion cases, we talk about them like everybody's supposed to know what they are, like they're the Black Sox scandal or something like that. And I think, you know, in terms of changing the economic face of baseball or, you know, the public face of baseball, it might be that significant a historical event, but they happened, uh, the bulk of the actual collusion happened before I was born and I was, I'm old as shit. So, you know, why don't you, you've got a good handle on some of the, the economic uh, and labor history. Why don't you explain in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with the nuts and bolts of the collusion cases from the eighties? Cause we, that's a, a word we're hearing a lot now. We're seeing players not hear anything and then get, four or five minor league offers or like, you know, everybody is just not in on, on Machado or Harper or Craig Kimbrell. And is that a coincidence or is that collusion? And collusion's a very, you know, it's got a very specific historical context within baseball. So in the eighties, Peter Rubroth was the commissioner of baseball and, uh, Peter, Peter Rubroth was kind of a strongman leader. And, uh, very much thought of himself as like a businessman and, uh, chastised the owners for not being businessmen were in their own businesses. They wouldn't uh, lose money in order to achieve their goals. But for some reason they felt they could do that uh, in a sports league. So they, you know, signed free agents to big contracts just to win a world series. Why would they do something like that? There's even a, a story about him saying, if you, if you had a, a red button and a black button, I think in front, I think those are the colors in front of you. And if you, if you push the red button, you're guaranteed to win the world series, but you'll lose $5 million. But if you press the black button, you'll you'll have a middling team, but you'll make $5 million. He's like, any of you who press the red button is an idiot, which was his way of kind of explaining like, hey, if you don't, if none of you try, you'll all still make money, uh, which is how collusion got going in the 80s. So there were three separate years of collusion because grievances take a while to be filed. So MLB just kind of kept doing this until a judge finally said, hey, you can't, <laughs> like, we know you colluded and you're going to be punished. So the first one 
was just a case of uh, the only teams offering contracts to free agents were the team that just had them. I can't remember which owner got out of line and like offered a player who wasn't one of their free agents a contract, but it was quickly rescinded once the other owners yelled at them. And you're not supposed to do any of that organized kind of negotiating behind the scenes, and the owners are the one who put anti-collusion rules into the CBA in the first place, which is a whole other story that doesn't involve the 80s. They had that kind of issue, and then uh, there was like an even stricter repeat of that the next season. And then the last one was an information-sharing data bank, which I think is probably the one that will be most relevant to discussions of the present day. But it was just a way for owners to go, hey, I offered this guy this, so you don't have to seriously overbid for him if you want him to. And things just aren't supposed to work in concert like that. So eventually the owners lost all, uh, they had these three grievances levies again, a levy against them. They lost all of them. There ended up being a combined settlement for the three of them for $280 million, which was in, I think, 1990 money. Uh, so significantly more than that now. And a lot of that money went into creating the expansion teams of the 90s to create more union jobs. And I mean, teams were happy, the owners were happy to do it because it meant more money in the game and all that for them too. But <laughs> the collusion was so significant that you know the Marlins and the Rockies exist in part because of the level of screwing free agents over that, that existed in the 80s. And the reason that this is, I wonder if we're just so uh, conditioned to to believe that in like the divine right of the invisible hand that you know people will say, oh, you know, that's why is that bad? Why is you know fixing these wages bad to ensure that the businesses make a profit? Since we we live in a pro business society, but like the free agent market is is predicated on competition, and if you take competition away, then there's no. I mean, there's no reason for to to put on a baseball team, but you know, it it just completely skews the uh, the direction of the labor market away from something that the players agree to, and you know, the entertainment product away from something that the fans agree to. And my worry is actually not that owners are colluding again, that not that there's capital C collusion, but that they happen to have ag- agreed to. You know, particularly, you look at the American League. The National League actually is fairly balanced. There's there's the old cliche about you want to go into opening day with every team thinking they've got at least a shot at making the playoffs. And that's all that's almost literally the case in the, in the, the national league, but in the AL, you really got four good teams. The other 11 teams are just sort of sitting it out and waiting or in various stages of a rebuild. And I worry that that's just the state of, of business and the sport is such that the way that teams would want to operate independently is practically similar to bad faith, illegal market fixing from 30 years ago. It's a very scary thing to contemplate, you know, not just as a, as a baseball fan, as a baseball writer, but as someone who has to exist in the American labor market. Yeah, I, I, so I wrote about this um, last January. I think it was called The Past, Present, and Future of MLB Collusion. And the future was also kind of the present. Um, I called it legalized collusion, where... The business model had been widely accepted and agreed upon by all of the teams, essentially, except for like the one we were still making fun of a year ago for not having a real analytics department, you know. But between that agreed upon like setup for what a front office should be and what they should be looking for, combined with combined with uh, the the wins they had in various collective bargaining agreements, you know, it had created the situation where, as you said, they can mirror this world of collusion this time period with collusion, but it's all above board. And so how do you fight that? You know, the players have said, 
they didn't realize they were agreeing to that because they assumed there'd be some like good faith and attempt to try. Uh, but clearly that hasn't been the case, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about. Like, you know, teams have just pushed a little too far and it is scary because how do you fix it and how do you keep it from happening again are two very big questions. And it's, it's unclear how you answer them uh, on a podcast segment or an article. Yeah. And on one hand, it's, it's easy to be annoyed at the union for being outflanked and not anticipating this. But on the other hand, it's understandable because for the entire course of baseball history up until, I don't know, the past 20 years or so, the people who have run teams have been former players and coaches. Even the owners, in a lot of cases, were former players. They want to make money, but also they want to win. And they're still like competitive, you know, quote unquote, baseball people. And, I, you know, I think it's good that those jobs are open to people from different backgrounds now. But now the people who are running baseball down to the baseball ops department are Harvard and Ivy League and other private school MBAs. I wrote about Theo Epstein a couple couple years ago and, and did some, you know, something like more than half of major league GMs or, or presidential or presidents of baseball operations have some sort of Ivy league or elite private school education. And those are the same people who are running hedge funds, who are doing leverage buyouts, who are, you know, shutting down toys R us and, and newspapers and stripping them for parts. And I just, you know, I, I think what we're seeing now is that same sort of late capitalist strip mining mindset Laying waste, nah, laying waste is probably a little too dramatic, but you know we're seeing a similar impact on on baseball now that we're seeing other sectors of the American economy, and the the effect is the same. You know, the people at the top make way more money to the peril of the labor class, which sees wages go up, you know, in absolute terms, but get completely slashed in terms of uh, share of the over- overall production. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I was just picturing like Bain Capital buying a baseball team, but I guess I guess we already have a Ricketts. A whole bunch of rickets. I was going to say, like some some of these people are literally the same people, Ugh. you know. <laughs> so it's all very disheartening. So let's uh, let's sort of let's make sure we go here before before we end. I am a little optimistic about the way the players uh, are playing this right now, which is you know would contradict the past twenty five years of baseball evolution, the past you know thirty years of American economic evolution and everything we know about the the players association, but it seems like they're getting better about getting fans on board first of all, the players are getting mobilized and you're seeing players like Bryant who you know you said have been radicalized I think that's yeah that's a pretty fair way to put it they're they're sticking their necks out there and talking about this, even players like Verlander like Evan Longoria who have already gotten paid who are warning that, you know, the next group of players down the line, Jake Arrieta has talked about this too. And Jake, you know, Jake Arrieta is, will never be confused for a communist in it yet. Or, a, you know, <laughs> any sort of lefty in, in any other aspect of his life. Um, but he's on board with this. So they're getting the message out to, to the fans. One, and there are two important points. One, this is hurting your team's on field product. And so the, like the way this is sold uh, service time manipulation, like the Cubs can sell that to their fans Insofar as they can talk about this openly, they say, well, we get Bryant for another year before free agency, you know, essentially an entire other year team control for free. And now we see Manny Machado talking to Padre, you know, almost looking into the mic and saying to fans directly, you know, I want Fernando Tatis up here now because I think he'll make the team better, uh, even if the and we'll figure out seven years down the road when that happens. The other thing is just impressing on people, you know, they see absolute top end free agents making 20, $30 million a year. And they look at how it, it costs $200 to, to take a family of four to the ballpark. If you, you know, if not more, 
and they they see a linkage there and there really isn't one if if player salaries get rolled back then ticket prices concessions prices the price of your mlb.tv subscription the price of your cable bill the price of the jersey will remain what the teams think you're willing to pay for it and they'll just pocket the difference if they can get you to pay the same price while paying players less. And I think that message is starting to get out there more. And I think having this tipping point three years in advance of the end of the CBA gives the players a lot of, a lot of run up room to hone their public relations message, to set money aside for a strike fund and to really get organized. And I think they're taking advantage of that opportunity. It's been very encouraging to see, um, Shocking. Yeah. Uh, you, you do see kind of a group of players within the union really starting to speak out. And, you know, there's more and more. Uh, last offseason, it was just, I think, like Eric Hosmer and Kenley Jansen, uh, Justin Upton straight up admitting he didn't want anything to do with free agency just because it was going to be horrible. Ended up being so much more prescient than I think any of us had any idea. It's good to see that there are so many more. I can bar- I can barely keep track of all the players talking about it this spring, which was different. What it was like, I could list them just off on the hard. Astros pitching staff alone. There's like a, I mean, I mentioned McHugh and, and Justin Verlander, but Garrett Cole's been, I mean, he was the pirates union rep, uh, before he got traded. He's been vocal about this stuff. Same, you know, we saw Jameson Tyone who took over for Cole at the top of the rotation and it as the, the pirates union rep, like the, the nominal union organizers, guys like McHugh and, and Cole and, and Tyone are actually, they're acting like it. They're acting like actual, union organizers now one of the things that's very encouraging to me you mentioned um you know verlander's being very vocal even though he's already been paid uh and other players who have already been paid are being vocal that's a huge change from some of the original downfalls of the of the union back in the 80s when like bob boone and paul molitor went around talking to other players talking directly with bud selig kind of undermining what marvin miller and gene orza and the rest of them were trying to do and getting in a fight about it, saying like, well, this is our union. And since, you know, there are more veterans and there are pre-arb guys who don't want to be pre-arb guys much longer. So forget that, you know, forget those guys. Like we already got paid. Why should we strike for, for this amount of time to fight for this thing that doesn't matter to me anymore? Of, of course, then Bob Boone got caught up in collusion um, right after that, partially because of the, the rally he had within the union to change their direction. That's a whole nother story. So it's good to see guys like Verlander, and Hosmer, right after he got signed last year, still bringing all of this up uh, because the union has been missing this solidarity. And that was the real change for the owners. Is once they were organized you know, behind Bud Selig and they never showed any cracks, that was kind of the beginning of the end. And the players really need to get back to that point. I mean, you were talking about the 80s. This happened as recently as the last CBA. You know, back in 2016, where you know the players wanted stuff like better hotel accommodations and an extra seat on the spring training bus, and the owners said, "I mean, th- it probably wasn't this tit for tat, but like those are the the concessions that the players got, and the concessions that the owners got was okay. How about a hard cap on international spending?" Yeah, the perception that these were like one to one trades was definitely unfair, but the fact that those were the things the players were concerned about instead of like the dismantling of free agency, you know, that is worth criticizing and. They've certainly been awoken to the issue now and seem to realize like, oh, arbitration is going to be worth less because free agency is worth less. And we've already capped draft spending and we've already capped international free agent spending. And the one venue we thought all the money was going to go to is a non-starter now. Huh. It's uh, 
it's rough, but also like it's interesting and exciting. And I, I don't know, in the course of our conversation, I've gotten reinvigorated about this. <laughs> I, I've been kind of weary about, uh, weary of of covering like yeah this is all just a gigantic drag and now i'm charged up so i'm i'm glad you came on uh mark i uh, mentioned that you can find the the newsletter on patreon um under mark normandon is creating baseball coverage featuring leftism uh i would recommend that look for your work uh you know i know you're, you're freelancing a couple places anything else you want to plug oh that's about it i uh, hope i keep showing up on deadspin and yeah that and the newsletter are pretty much pretty much what i've been up to there's certainly no shortage of content right now. No. Well, everybody, I mean, this is the the gig economy we're living in right now. So, all right. Well, thanks for, for coming on. This has been, uh, been a lot of fun. I hope, I hope this was, was persuasive to, to people listening until next time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me anytime. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben. Thanks to my guest, Mark Normandin. Go sign up for his newsletter. Uh, thanks to Bobby Wagner, who's been doing some incredible production work under very difficult circumstances because he's so incredibly mad that the Phillies are going to be good this year. Uh, thanks to Bryce Harper, Luis Severino, and Jessica Mendoza for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, whether you're going to spring training or watching Michigan and UCLA at the Dodgertown Classic. Uh, and we'll see you next time.